Anybody here want to come and try and follow that? Because I will gladly let you. I think uh, where we're going this morning with the text is going to help you see the great I am um, in ways perhaps that you haven't before. We're going to be going back to Hebrews, and, and if you haven't been here in the last couple of weeks, we're working our way through the book of Hebrews, but this morning we're going to be in chapter 2. So if you have your Bible and you want to turn to Hebrews chapter 2, I'm going to ask you at the same time to stick your finger in Psalms chapter 8, and then I'm going to ask you to stick your finger in Genesis chapter 1. You have more than one finger, right? So you can you got three of them used so far. So Hebrews chapter two, Psalm chapter eight, Genesis chapter one. You're going to see why. You'll of course see all those passages on the screen, and I'll I'll explain it a little bit more fully to you. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's some in the pew racks in front of you. And, and if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take one of those with you this morning when you leave. It's our gift to you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's word in your hand. We really want you to own a Bible. So um, here we go. We're, we're going to be in. Uh, Psalm 8, Genesis 1, Hebrews 2, but i got to start with a verse that's been hanging with me all week, and it's 1 John 4, 4. You're going to see it a few times throughout the course of this teaching. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Anybody say amen to that? I heard a few of you. Amen. That's right. That's a truth. You're going to hear that repeated. Last week, we saw what this great salvation is that Jesus has given, and, and the writer of Hebrews is warning us how shall, you escape? How shall you escape if you neglect such a great salvation, if you don't pay enough attention to it? Well, this week, the author moves a little bit further down the trail and is making a case that Jesus is better because of the way that he subjected creation to himself. And what you're going to learn is how creation was subjected to mankind at one time, and it will be again in the future. And that tells us that it was probably lost. So this is all about understanding our destiny. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, what the Bible calls the redeemed of the Lord, if you're a Christian, you have a destiny. And perhaps you've never been told that you're going to rule. This might be the first time you've ever heard it in your life that you're going to have dominion after the second coming when Jesus returns. But you are. I'm here to tell you that's what God's Word says. If you're a follower of Jesus. So God sees you as a future ruler that's an important truth to get down. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5. But before we do, I'm going to pray with you and we're going to ask God's Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Would you do that with me? Father, where we're going with this uh, text, we wouldn't dare undertake without your Holy Spirit guiding us. We recognize it could just be the words of man and we don't want that. So Father, for those who are listening and for this speaker, I ask that your Holy Spirit would dominate and not only just brood over this auditorium, but teach us. You told us wherever two or more are gathered in your name, there the presence of Christ is also among them. So Father, with your Spirit present here, we know that we can learn in ways that we can't learn on our own. We invite your Holy Spirit to be our teacher and our guide, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5 says this, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. That might kind of feel like he's made a hard shift on the, on the shift column, but if you remember what we were talking about in Hebrews chapter 1, it was all about angels. And so he's, he's reaching back to chapter 1, and he's bringing up angels again as he talks about this world that's going to be subjected. So he's not just introducing, as a matter of fact, that's why he says at the end of the verse, about which we are speaking, because he's already introduced the thought. Now why does he bring up angels here? 
Well, because there's in play holy angels and fallen angels, what, what the world calls demons. Demons are fallen angels. So we've got something going on here in this passage in which there's angels who currently are in a role around the world. And we'll discover that as we move through this morning. God never intended to give rule to angels. The fallen angels were never intended to have authority and dominion, but they've usurped something. So we need to understand this word world here. When he says God, it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come. This world that's used here, the word world, is literally the inhabited earth. In your notes this morning, you see a Greek word, okimene, and it has this meaning of the inhabited earth. And it was used in a very specific way. Um, the word cosmos was mostly the word for world. But here we find it's only used two times in the Bible. And this particular use of it was something that the Greeks had captured when they spoke of other nations that they had conquered as a people. So when the Greek culture spread out among the known world, they would think of those who inhabited the other nations as being this group of the oikimene, this inhabited earth. Well, the Romans liked that, and so they adopted it for themselves. And as the Roman world spread and moved their empire out, they used the same phrase, for wherever Caesar ruled, this concept of the inhabited earth, meaning wherever men and women live. And so Jesus used the same phrase. We see it in Matthew 24. It says this in verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world, the oikimene, as a testimony to all the nations. It was a very familiar phrase to people at this period of time. That means when the writer of Hebrews uses the word that this world will be subjected, that word subjected must be a very important word. It's, it's a hinge word. It's something that the whole sentence is based on. So if you were here during the study of Revelation or perhaps during our study of Genesis, this next Greek word might be very familiar to you. It's the word hupotasso, your second Greek word this morning. And hupotasso is the word subjected. And it has this particular meaning. When we think of a schoolyard bully, maybe a kid that goes out and beats up on other kids, you might think of someone who's putting another individual in subjection and they're just beating the tar out of them. But that's not the concept that's going on here. This is subjection with order. This was used in a military term. So we have hupotasso that's being used with subjection and proper order. That's why it says at the end of the definition, with structure. This is the way the Greeks used it. When a soldier was enlisted into the military and he was put under his commanding officer, it was a person who could exercise subjection with order. The Romans came to use it for any system of administration. So if we're looking at this the way that the first century people would, we would say this writer of Hebrews is saying, God is not going to turn over the administration of the world to come. Well, what is this world to come? We really need to understand that. First of all, know that after the second coming of Jesus, the world order that will be in place will be an inhabited earth. It's not going to be a desperate wasteland. It's going to be a beautiful place, a place of majesty. And it will be subjected to someone. Someone is going to rule over it because the passage says it will be put into subjection. Now, we're talking about a world of perfection, so we would have to say whoever is going to reign during that period of time is going to be somebody really special, somebody incomparable. 
perhaps with capacity beyond anything that we see in world rulers today. Does that spark your interest? You might wonder, well, who is that? Well, we're beginning to talk about you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. That's how God sees you. So to move forward, we need to really understand what he's talking about when he says this world to come because planet Earth, the ecosystem, will be significantly changed in the future world. I want you to understand that through a couple Old Testament prophecies. I'm not going to go to the book of Revelation this morning. Let's just use some of the Old Testament prophets because they're consistent with what the book of Revelation says. This first one comes from Zechariah 14. And it's speaking of God when it says, Lord, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. Verse 10, all the land will be changed into a plain. Verse 11, People will live in it, and there will no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Now, there's three things that should really catch your attention that I underlined. First of all, that the earth will be changed, the land will be changed, meaning the, the, the ancient people looked at mountains as a bad thing because they were impenetrable. And he's saying it's a good thing. The, the physical earth is going to be changed. It will become a plain And he also says there will no longer be a curse. Is there a curse on planet Earth today? Yeah, there's a curse. And so this must be talking about something future, right? And look at the last one. For Jerusalem will dwell in security. Does Jerusalem dwell in security today? Yeah, so we can say definitely. He's talking about something that hasn't happened yet. Looking at another time. Now, also in this ecosystem, the animals will be different. Let me take you to Isaiah 11. Kind of a long passage. Not going to read the whole thing, but I just want to show you a couple things. Isaiah 11 and verse 6. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. You ever seen that? I've seen wolves eat lambs. They don't dwell with lambs. And look at the next part. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. I would never let my little boy lead a leopard or a wolf. Okay? So something's going to change in the animal world as well. We really need to get our minds around this. This is something future because it says here, a child will play by the hole of the cobra. There's no mother that I know would let her child play next to the hole of a cobra. What are we talking about here? We're talking about the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth. So taken as a whole, it's speaking of the messianic age. However, that's not the primary point this writer is making. The primary point is angels will not rule over it. Angels will not be the ones who put it into subjection. Now, that's important to understand, especially as you think back to what we learned in chapter 1. This present world is ruled by angels. Now, that may be new news to you, Fallen angels have authority and have taken dominion over this planet according to God's word. I need to show you this in the Bible because this is a biblical truth. Let me take you first to 1 John 5.19. This says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Who is that evil one? Well, it's the dominant fallen angel, Satan, the prince of the world. Jesus literally called him the ruler of the world himself. Look with me on the screen. Three verses, you might want to write these in your notes this morning very quickly so you can refer to them. John 14, 30, Jesus called him the ruler of the world. Ephesians 2, 2, the prince of the power of the air. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world. He's the source of all the evil. And Jesus personally called him the father of lies. So the planet that you live on right now is under tremendous demonic influence. 
And that's why Ephesians 6 says they are rulers, they are powers, they are world forces. As a matter of fact, Ephesians 6, 6, 12 says it this way. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, meaning humans, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness. John MacArthur had it to sum it up this way. I'll let you see his quote. He said, not only do Satan and his fallen angels have some rule in this world, but even the holy angels now have a kind of sovereignty. Daniel 10 tells of Michael and another holy angel fighting against powerful fallen angels. The rule of this earth, therefore, is now in the hands of both fallen and holy angels. Well, if that's true, and it is, 1 John 4.4 is especially important to us, church. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Because the he who is in the world is one who does not intend for your best outcome. But the he who is in you sees you differently than perhaps you even see yourself. He sees you as a ruler. Uh, Let me help you with that by moving to verse 6. Verse 6 says this, It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Now, the son of man is a phrase that Jesus used of himself occasionally, but it's, it's referring to humankind. It means one who has the quality of, of being man. The author is not here talking about Jesus specifically. He wouldn't ask the question, why do you care about Jesus? That's not what's going on here. What he's doing is he's quoting Psalms chapter 8. So if this morning you stuck your finger in Hebrews chapter 2 and Psalms chapter 8 and Genesis 1, this is your chance to turn to Psalm chapter 8. But you'll see it as well up on the screen. Here's the setting. It's King David speaking. And David, understand, grew up in the wilderness. He was a shepherd boy who became king of Israel. And he spent many nights outside contemplating God's creation. Well, this is what he wrote in verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, here's the quote, verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands." So David's looking up and he's contemplating the magnitude and the majesty of what we've been given here and he realizes how small and insignificant we are. This little blue dot planet earth and he's asking the question, God, why are you taking an interest in us? And when he starts out in verse six by saying someone has testified somewhere, it's not that he's forgetful. He hasn't forgotten who said it. As a matter of fact, he quotes Psalms chapter 8 exactly. He knows who said it. When he uses the word testified, it literally means this. The words that are coming, take them with full gravity. In other words, feel the weight of this. Now he uses these phrase, you are mindful of us and you care for us. Those are images of God in salvation history. So when you see that, you would begin to think of salvation. Why? Because mindful means a sense of remembering, thinking of an individual with a view to helping them. But it's combined with this thought of you care for us. That's a Greek word, episkopete. It's not in your notes this morning, but here's the thought behind it. You ever been in the hospital or or been very, very ill and had someone come and visit you, perhaps they brought you a card or just stood at the door and waved at you because you were contagious or or perhaps wished you well. But then you've had individuals who come to you and not only brought you flowers, brought you a card, but perhaps if you were suffering with a fever, they sat down next to you and, and 
they took a cold washcloth and they would wring out the water and try and chill your forehead. That's the thought between episcopate. You care for us to the degree that it involved action on your part. So David is asking the same question that the writer of Hebrews is saying, there's way more going on here than just you paying attention to us. What is there, God, about us that you actually would stoop to help us? We're so insignificant. That's what David's asking. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. They're thinking about this little blue dot, planet Earth, in the middle of this massive universe, and we've got God's attention. Now, there's no doubt in my mind whatsoever that David and the writer of Hebrews are both thinking of the same thing. They're both thinking of Genesis chapter 1. So if you have your finger in Genesis chapter 1, you can flip over to that right now. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, you'll see this is well up on the screen, but here's the ultimate image that God has for us and the reason why He cares for us as He does. It starts out this way. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, we're going to bear down on this. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God saw all that he had made and behold, it wasn't just kind of good. It was very good. God really liked what he did. But we're told according to Genesis 1 that when God created the world, he placed it under man. He created it in God's image. He created us in his image and he made us to rule over his creation. So it's really critical before we move forward in Hebrews that we understand when he said he wanted us to subdue the earth and he wanted us to have dominion over the earth that we understand what this is. Well, this first word, subdue, is the Hebrew word kavash. And if you've ever used the phrase, put a kavash on it, that's where this word comes from. It's a Hebrew word. It means to put an end to something. In in their language, it meant to put something into subjection or literally to put your foot on the neck of your enemy and force it to the ground, using your enemy's neck as a footstool. Now, subdue has to be used with dominion because it changes the meaning of the phrase. Have dominion is the word radah. And radah has this particular meaning. When a ruler was in power and given authority, radah meant they went down among their subjects and dwelt with them, not to subjugate them, but to learn from them and to have relationship with them, that they might be a more benevolent leader. So we're told that mankind, the implication here is he's supposed to not only take authority, but he's also supposed to walk and live and be among those creation. I personally have never wanted to walk and live and be among lions because I know they would rip me limb from limb. I don't know about you, but I've never wanted to walk with a wolf or with a leopard. But God says, here's my creation, walk among it. Now this makes a whole lot of sense when we see God saying to Adam, you know what, Adam? I'm going to bring all of creation to you, and you're going to name it. All the animals that I line up before you, whatever name you give them, that's going to be their name. Why? Because of this. Adam knew them. 
He understood them. He dwelt among them. It also makes sense why God says, you know what, Adam, I've looked over all of the things I've created, and there's not a suitable helpmeet for you, so I will make Eve. And the two of them were given dominion over God's creation, man and woman ruling together. Now, we have a serious problem here. Because when we look at this passage, it's obvious man today is not exercising dominion over creation in a biblical way. We, we wouldn't say that that's true. We don't control the fish or the birds or the animals. We have a hard time controlling ourselves. I barely can keep my lawn mowed. Well, this time of year it's not so hard. I barely can keep my driveway plowed. Okay, you, you understand where I'm going here. We know what this means. This is an echo This is an echo of our ancient past, but it's a projection to our destiny because this writer is saying there's something coming here in this world to come. You need to understand why the world will not be subject to the angels, even though it currently is. So let's go to verse 7. Verse 7 says this, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. Speaking of man, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. So God made us in a very particular way lower than the angels. First of all, we're flesh and blood. We have bodies of flesh and bone. They have bodies, but not of flesh and bone. We're earthly creatures. They're not. They're heavenly beings. It's not that you are less loved by God. You're not. It's not that you're seen on a lower lower scale. It's not. That God cares for you and loves you greatly. It's not that. It's not that we're lower in significance. Angels were created for a purpose, to serve God. So if you've ever struggled with your own dignity, with your own self-worth, a sense of value, what's coming up is really for you. Because we're told in verse 7, we were made for a little while. There's a time frame there, church. There's a little while. The present chain of command is temporary. There's a time limit to this inferiority that we know that was not true of us in the past. That's why he says, for a little while, we're lower than the angels. Well, in your notes this morning, I put on the right-hand side some of the major differences between us and angels. As a matter of fact, here's a couple of them. The man is confined to earth. The angels are not confined to the realm of heaven. They can travel between earth and heaven freely. Man is confined to space and time. Angels can step through the fabric of time from eternity into time and out again. They're not confined that way. Our direct communication with God was lost. We're told in Genesis that man walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day, meaning direct communication. We don't have that. We can pray, but that's the best communication we have at this point. The angels have direct access to God's throne, and they have direct communication. You and I are subject to death. They can't die. We're limited in our capacity, physically and intellectually. They are not. They are supernatural in their power and in their strength and in their intelligence. But that's not true of us in the new earth. That's not true of us in the future. Let me show you what the prophet Daniel said in Daniel chapter 7, what was going to be true of us in the future. He says this in Daniel 7.18, the saints of the highest one, that's you, in case you didn't know, you're a saint, that's the way Scripture sees you, the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve 
and obey him. See, we are rulers. We don't yet have a kingdom. Not only will you inherit a perfect kingdom, you will inherit an eternal kingdom. So that's why the writer says, only for a little while. For a little while, you're lower than the angels because the whole earth is going to be redeemed. It's a promise of God, and God cannot lie, right? That's true. Okay, let's go on to verse 8. This is, he's finishing the quote now from Psalms. Verse 8 says this, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That's the end of the quote. And he goes on with his own commentary. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So under his feet is this term that was used when kings ruled the earth. Under his feet meant there was a king who was elevated. Kings were always elevated and their throne was always set up on high. And the more powerful a king, the more steps there were up to his throne. When a king was really great and really powerful, the subjects under him were said to be under his feet because his feet were up so high. So this writer is saying, these people who are going to inherit this coming world, this future world that will be subjected, will have those who will put things under their feet, meaning great power to the degree that God says in verse 8, he left nothing outside of our control. But he gives us a reality check. Because if you look at verse 8 very closely, it says, at present, we do not yet see this. Can you agree with that? We don't see this. It's, it's reality for us. Why? Because our destiny was denied. So, all that to get to this. If what God originally gave to man in the way of dominion and authority and rule was changed, it has to have been a cataclysmic change. Would you agree? That's got to be something off the charts. That things were changed to the degree that what God gave was taken away. Well, we find why in Genesis 3. Because man sinned and the curse was brought. It says this in Genesis 3, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. This is God speaking to Adam. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat the bread till you return to the ground. That's not the way it was supposed to be. As a matter of fact, it goes on in verse 23 to say this, Therefore, the Lord God evicted Adam and kicked him out of his home and said, you can't even come back in the Garden of Eden anymore. It's no longer for you. It's been removed. Because Adam sinned, the whole earth was corrupted. And it's the immediate loss of the kingdom and the immediate loss of the crown. So here's the truth. At the temptation, the tempter, the evil one, usurped your crown and you lost your dominion. And there was a change in the chain of command. Man fell and the very earth that we had dominion over now fights against us. The truth is that even with modern technology, we fight against planet earth. Before Lori and I in this last year bought a house up here in the Hazlitt area, we lived down in Wheatfield Township where we were surrounded by cornfields. And I watched farmers day after day, week after week, month after month, live out the promise of Genesis 3. They were fighting against thorns and thistles, rain hail, wind, things that would destroy the crops. So even with modern technology, we fight for our survival. And whatever good things we do get from the earth, it comes by serious effort. 
John Wolverd said it this way. I'd love for you to see his quote. It is part of the frustration of life that in every part of it, there are the equivalents of thorns and thistles that make life so hard for the tiller of the soil. Hmm. You encountered thorns and thistles in your life? It might be through a physical ailment. It might be through things that just don't go right on the job site. It's things that go wrong in your social world. Many times when things go upside down for me, I look at it and say, thanks, Adam. Thorns and thistles, man. And you know what I'm talking about. You know what it is to scratch out an existence. If you live in the real estate world, you don't have to think too far back to think of what it was like in the real estate world in the last few years to scratch out an existence. What about if you're in the finance world? The last five years have been a reality check for you. Thorns and thistles, man. And if you live in the world of medicine, well, you know. You know, it's just tough right now here in these United States. You feel like things are thorns and thistles. So you and I live in the fallenness, the reality of a fallen world. Even our planet knows the reality of this situation. Look with me at Romans chapter 8. Verse 19 says this, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. You notice what it says, not of its own will. Man, earth groans. We understand that we're living in a reality check. So John MacArthur says this, extremes of heat and cold. Man, we're living that today. Poisonous plants and reptiles, earthquakes, tornadoes, floods, hurricanes, diseases, war. All these were released upon man at the fall. Virtually everything God had given for man's good and blessing became his enemy. And man has been fighting a losing battle ever since. Why? Because of the one that's in power. The prince and the power of the air. 1 John 5.19 The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. No wonder creation groans. God did not intend for it to be this way. And it's going to continue this way for a little while. That should be a hope for you, church. It's for a little while. As a matter of fact, the author says in verse 8, not yet. Meaning he's optimistic. He knows there's an end coming. But it's still here, a reality now. But look what's going to happen in Romans 8.21. When the millennial kingdom comes, The creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. See, planet Earth is going to be liberated from this corruption. And when the kingdom comes, you know, if you make your living in medicine, I'm sorry to tell you, but hospitals are going to close. You're going to be out of a job. Can you imagine living in a time when crops are not infested and insects won't destroy them? How how about this? Wars will cease. This one will get your attention. Politics will be over. Yeah, I'm living that, all right? That's the hope and the dream. As a matter of fact, when when Scripture looks forward in time, there's this projection verse coming from Isaiah 2.4. Let me share this verse with you and then tell you where it comes from in our modern world. Isaiah 2.4 says this, And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. If you go to New York City to the United Nations building, you're going to find that verse carved in concrete in front of the United Nations. 
because back in the 1940s when the United Nations was put in power, people believed that they could accomplish this in their lifetime. I'm here to tell you it's only going to be accomplished when the king comes. And when the king returns, he will live this out for us because the day is coming when the dominion that was lost will be given to us again. Why? 1 John 4, 4. Say it with me, church. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. It's the truth of the Bible. God's saying it's going to change. This one is powerful. So we see verse 9 as our, our end point for today. Verse 9 says this, but we see him. Who's him, church? Jesus. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We see Jesus. God's answer to our dilemma. See, Jesus didn't just die and be resurrected for the purpose of salvation. He died and was resurrected to deliver us and to restore us to His original plan. God's purpose for man is that we would have dominion and those who believe in Him will be given that. So the author says, first century church, Hebrews, I know you're being killed by the Romans. I know that you're being fed to the lions. Remember the setting when we looked at this in chapter 1. They were under incredible persecution. And he's saying, don't forget, we see Him, Jesus, who is crowned with glory and honor. That's why Philippians 2 says what it does. Verse 6, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but He emptied Himself coming down to our level. That's why the writer says, for a little while, He was made lower than the angels. That's past tense. He's looking back to what Jesus did when He emptied Himself and He became lower than the angels for us. That's the incarnation. But now He says in verse 9, He's been crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of the death. The death with all that it entails that He did for us. But the focus here is on the fact that He became man in order to die. But I love the last part of verse 9. By the grace of God, He tasted death for everyone. It's a beautiful picture in the Greek language when we say that Jesus tested death. It tasted death. It literally has this metaphorical meaning. When you taste something, it passes by your taste buds and you come to experience it. What we're told is Jesus came to know what we were supposed to know. He tasted death on our behalf for everyone. Why? Because the cross conquers the curse. The cross conquers the curse, church. The cross conquers the church, exclamation point. God knew that. That was his plan, that the kingdom would be restored and man will be given the crown again. So we understand in losing our relationship to God at the fall, man really lost the meaning of his life. He lost his purpose. I talk to people on a regular basis who say, I don't know what I'm here for. I don't even know my meaning in life. What's my purpose? Well, first of all, your purpose is to glorify God. That's why we were created. But we also understand why so many people can't find meaning for their life because of what we looked at today. People are searching in vain, attempting to fill this huge hole that's in them. And so they go after material possessions and they go after improper relationships and they go after substances they try and inject their body with. 
All those things are trying to fill this hole and it's a gaping wound that can't be healed except for Jesus. Only Jesus can heal that internal damage. Only Jesus can give you back your destiny because God says man was created to be king of the earth. And here's a truth for you to take with you this morning if you're not a believer in Jesus. It is not possible for you to be restored to that position if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. Because according to Scripture, the only way that man can ever be in dominion again is to have the curse removed. In order for the curse to be removed, there has to be a penalty paid because the wages of sin is death. I'm here to tell you this morning, if you've never heard it before, Jesus paid that price for you. If there is any reason for us to feel good about ourselves, it's because Jesus did something about our fallen condition. Man was created to rule But sin turned the world upside down. 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus was the last Adam because the first Adam screwed things up. He really did. And we would have done the same thing. Don't think that we're superior to Adam. Eve, same thing. Women, you would have done the same thing Eve did. It's in our nature to rebel for some reason. We just have that potential within us. But the last Adam, Jesus, the perfect God-man came, the second person of the Trinity, and he took our situation and he showed us what dominion can look like. I'm going to give you some lunchtime conversation as you leave out of here this morning. If you look on the right-hand side of your notes or you just listen to what I'm about to say, I want you to think in the framework of what we just talked about and think about how Jesus showed dominion over creation. Think of Jesus talking to Peter. Peter's out in the boat. Jesus says, have you caught any fish? They just met each other. They haven't known each other very long. Peter says, no, we fished all night long. There's no fish here. Jesus says, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. What did they do? They put their nets on the other side of the boat and the catch was so great, they couldn't even pull it out of the water. Their nets began to break. They had to call friends from shore saying, come on out, help us. Why? Jesus took dominion over creation. Jesus had dominion over the fowl, over the wild beast, over the domesticated beast, over the weather. He demanded death would have no victory in his presence. He walked on water. Sickness had no dominion where he was at. He wouldn't allow it. Why? Because Jesus is better. The perfect man. The one who showed us what it looks like to be in power and authority and control. 1 John 4.4 Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So if you're struggling with identity, if you're struggling with self-worth, you want to change your life trajectory, see yourself this morning as God sees you. Not only the redeemed of the Lord, but a future ruler over his creation. That is a biblical truth you can take with you today. Would you pray with me? I'm going to pray that God would help you to settle this down in your mind. Father, I I know for certain there's individuals who have been here throughout this weekend who are struggling with the concept of self-worth and their life trajectory. I pray, Father, that you would take these truths whether they hear him on our podcast or they were present in the auditorium, that you would drive these biblical truths down deep into their soul and show them who they really are in you. Father, I pray specifically for those who are the followers of Jesus Christ this morning that they would take this truth and walk in a new confidence and a new boldness.
and be willing to tell those who need to hear this truth that they can know this as well. Father, I pray now for those who might be among us who are not believers, who are still investigating this. God, I ask that you would come alongside them with your gentle spirit, with your presence of mercy and grace, and that you would open their eyes, and that you would reveal to them the truth that we've shared this morning that it would be a present reality in their life. And Father, we trust you for salvations as a result of this. Thank you for what you've done among us. We turn these truths over to you for the use of your Holy Spirit in our life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, Amen.